0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today
1: with Byte. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bill Press pod. Last week, Congress passed the biggest spending bill in history, a $2.2 trillion rescue plan to help big corporations, small businesses, and working-class Americans, all hard-hit by the economic fallout from the coronavirus. Even though the bill was quickly signed by President Trump and is now the law of the land, several questions, however, remain. One, what's in the bill and who's at help? Two, how can we be sure that the money in the bill reaches those who need help the most? And three, does this bill do the job Or do we need a fourth stimulus package? And what are its chances? For answers today, we turn to one of the Democratic leaders in the House of Representatives, a key ally of Speaker Nancy Pelosi and chair of the Democratic Policy and Communications Committee, Congressman David Cicilline of Rhode Island. Congressman, it's good to talk to you uh, and nice to join you again. Good to talk with you. Let's start by Rhode Island. Um, Governor Raimondo has been one of the most uh, aggressive governors dealing with the coronavirus uh, issue. Uh, Do you think she's made the right moves? And is it working? What do you see on the ground up in Rhode Island?
0: She has, I think, done a very good job of of taking the virus seriously. She's been very aggressive in uh, directing Rhode Islanders to socially distance, uh, shutting down gatherings of more than five people. Uh, asking people who are doing non-essential work to remain at home. Uh, She's also been very aggressive in planning for the surge that we, uh, like every state, expect to happen when this virus spreads. She's been very aggressive in demanding uh, testing and uh, making certain that our our hospitals are prepared for the surge. As of this morning, we've had 657 positive cases of COVID-19 uh, 72 mm. Rhode Islanders have been hospitalized, and 12 people have died. So obviously these are still significant numbers for our state, but she's been very, very serious about using all of the resources and authority of her office to keep Rhode Islanders safe.
1: Is there any one hot spot in Rhode Island? Is it Providence, or...?
0: Yes, I mean, the you know, the densely populated urban areas, Providence, Pawtucket, Central Falls, have a higher incidence of infection. You know, based on the testing that we're doing, of course, we still have the same problems of most states, not sufficient access to testing. Uh, The governor's goal is to to get to a thousand tests a day. And I think she's very close to that and will be by the end of this week. But, you know, we need to do much wider widespread testing and um, the inadequacy of the testing kits and the reagents and the swabs have presented problems here in Rhode Island as they have everywhere.
1: And how about the supply or the availability of um, what they call PPE, protective equipment, uh, with uh, ventilators and masks, particularly? Well, I mean, Rhode Rhode Island,
0: Island yes, uh, a problem, and the governor is working it. We're all trying to find and identify sources in this country and around the world. This is a real failing of the current administration that you have governors and states that are competing with each other, and no centralized uh, production uh, system, no centralized distribution system. So, fortunately, our governor has lots of contacts in the business community, and she's trying to use those to, to our benefit. We, we, you know, we and the congressional offices are doing the same. We're being contacted by some folks that have supplies, and we're connecting them to the uh, governor's procurement person. But this is not an efficient way to run a railroad. This is not how states should be identifying and procuring what our hospitals need to keep our residents safe.
1: How do you rate the administration's response, particularly President Trump's response to this first major crisis of his administration?
0: Well, I think it's been very slow. It has been incoherent. Uh, It really began when the president didn't, from the very first days of this a pandemic recognized the seriousness of this challenge and tried to really diminish the seriousness, didn't take decisive action, didn't share with the American people what they should be doing early in the pandemic, because I think he was so concerned about minimizing the implications because he was viewing it through kind of his the impact on him and on his political fortunes. This is one time where the president of the United States should not be thinking about himself. But thinking about the well-being of the American people. But he spent those first weeks of the pandemic uh, describing it as not, nothing more than the flu, and it was going to miraculously disappear in the springtime, and even described it at a rally as the latest hoax of the Democrats. And uh, of course, that was dead wrong and dangerous. And uh, while those first cases were surfacing, we had an opportunity to do a lot of good preparation, or we should have in terms of Mm-hmm. wrapping up the production of testing kits and racking up the production of uh, PPEs and all the things that are necessary to respond to this. And we really wasted or the administration really wasted weeks and weeks that could have been used to prepare. So I think the beginning has been very inadequate and very slow. And even to this day, I mean, the president has refused to really in a serious way invoke the Defense Production Act and really to take over the management of this supply of medical uh, equipment that is necessary to combat this pandemic and to then have a federal effort kind of done by regions to regionalize the distribution of mm-hmm. ventilators and ppe and masks i mean the idea that every governor in this country is independently you know fighting to get this necessary medical supplies means a there's no coherent way for distribution b Um, you're driving up the prices. So there's enormous price gouging. So we're paying much more for this stuff. All of that could be eliminated because the president could direct the production of these materials. He is the only person who can do that under the defense production act. Congress can't do it. This is a unique power of his office. For some reason, he will not do it. It's hard to understand for a president who uses the power of his office, sometimes completely improperly, when it's for his own benefit or the benefit of his family or his political future. But in this moment, when it would benefit the well-being and the health and safety of the American people, he's, for some reason, will not do it. And he's created a system where people are without proper you know, level of ventilators, of PPEs, of masks, and they're fighting on the open market to try to get them. This is a terrible way uh, to be managing the pandemic.
1: Now, you are back in Rhode Island. Before you went back to your home state, of course, the House passed, and then the president signed. The Senate had passed it originally, the most massive spending bill in the history of the United States Congress: 2.2 trillion dollars, uh, stimulus number three. People are calling it. Uh, there's some have criticized it. Congressman as nothing but a big welfare check to big corporations. Uh, is it more than that? Who does it help? Do you yeah, see?
0: Definitely more than that. I, I wanted to say for at the outset. It nineteen three. It's the third stimulus package. It should be remembered that we did two before this. The first time the president made a proposal to respond to this pandemic, he proposed $2.5 billion in spending. Half of that was going to come from an Ebola council. So it was only $1.25 billion of new money. Both Democrats and Republicans recognized that was completely insufficient. That first package ended up being $8.3 billion. It was really focused on the development of treatments and a vaccine, some protections against price gouging, uh, billions of dollars in funding to hospital infrastructure, uh, expansion of Medicare, and some support for small business, uh, about $7 billion. Two weeks later, we did the second package that provided free coronavirus testing for everyone who needs it paid emergency leave up to 14 days, uh, extended medical leave up to th- uh, four months, in very enhanced unemployment benefits, food security that addressed SNAP, student meals, senior nutrition, and increased funds for Medicaid. The third relief package was, re- was really about beginning to address some of the economic consequences of the pandemic. So it included $115 billion in state and local uh, stabilization funds, billion in dramatically expanded unemployment benefits, including a $600 a week federal benefit on top of the state benefit, uh, extended uh, 13 weeks over the previous levels of unemployment uh, insurance, Mm -hmm. included self-employed, independent contractors, gig economy workers, so really expanded. The goal of it was that you get your full pay for about four months on average for most workers. It included $1,200 in cash payments for each individual and $500 for each child uh, below uh, $75,000, $150,000 for a couple. Uh, More than $370 billion in small business relief, $200 billion for hospitals, healthcare workers, and research, $104 billion in public transit, uh, HUD emergency solution grants, uh, childcare uh, support. Uh, LIHEAP, additional LIHEAP support, uh, some uh, burn justice assistance plus ups, $3 million in election assistance, and uh, $5.4 million in CDC uh, coronavirus state, local, and tribal grants for certain small So there's a lot in it. Um, I think there is no question. We've already begun work on the fourth package. This package did include Uh, a $500 billion um, allocation to support important sectors of our national economy. When the bill was originally prepared by the Republicans in the Senate, it was a complete giveaway to corporate America. I mean, it was was shocking. We uh, really did our best to change it, to put workers first, families first, and small businesses first. And again, recognizing we have to get it through the Republican Senate, we, we really made major changes in the bill. We also mm-hmm. provided oversight for that money for the big corporations so that it could not be used for um, stock buybacks and CEO compensation and dividends. But it had to be used to protect jobs and they couldn't reduce wages or benefits for workers. So um, I think we end up with a good bill. We have to do another one. I, I think we're beginning to sure. see the
1: consequences of this that are going to require us to do lots more. Uh, How soon do you think those checks, what are you told by the administration? How soon will those checks be in people's hands? I think it's a great
0: question. I started a a Twitter storm today about this very question because, you know, it's been more than a week now. Uh, First, they, you know, we made it clear that these checks should be done electronically for anyone who has information with the IRS or with Social Security so they can happen immediately. They originally floated the idea yes that they were going to require seniors to fill out a form and they were going to mail them a check which would of course delay this. We really responded forcefully and they came out with a, an agreement last night that they would do it electronically as long as they had the information which is important because this money's got to get out fast. But we've got to press the administration because one of the things I'm worried about is we've passed all this relief but people still don't have the money. So I right. started with, you know, where is the money? We passed, you know, $2.2 trillion to get it into the hands of workers and families and seniors. Where is the money? That money hasn't gone out yet. They're saying it's going to take a couple of weeks. You know, bills became due on the first of the month. People need that money now. We're asking people to stay home and socially distance. So we just have to keep shaming these agencies to get this money out. Same thing with the Small Business Administration. That money is finally going online today. They are taking the applications but we need to press them to get that money out. Small businesses are holding on by a thread. Uh, Many of them are not even able to hold on. So this is going to be the next part of our work is just keeping the pressure on this administration to get this money out that we've appropriated.
1: So what did you find? uh, I know you pushed for more than you were able to get. Of course, as you point out, that's the part of the legislative process. What do you think is missing in COVID-19-3 that should be in COVID-19-4? Well, I
0: think for sure in covid 19 we're going to have to provide much more assistance to small businesses. I think we're going to see that that money that was allocated is going to be used up very, very quickly because, you know, we have virtually shut down the economy. Uh, And the good news is the way that money is structured is people can bring back their workers, keep them on the payroll, even if the restaurant can't open yet because of social distancing. So they're keeping their payroll going. Those individuals will have their paycheck rather than have to take unemployment. We're gonna to need to extend unemployment benefits. I think we will absolutely have to do another cash payment to families. Um, we'll need additional resources to hospitals, healthcare systems, additional compensation for our healthcare workers, almost like hazard pay because they're being asked to work in really unbelievable conditions. And I think um, we're gonna to have to do a lot to support state and local governments who are being really devastated by this pandemic. So their ability to collect revenues and their ability to pay police and fire and school teachers is is really being decimated. So I think we have to focus very keenly on state and local governments in this nest package as well.
1: You have mentioned a couple of times referred to the paid leave provisions of of the third stimulus package. The New York Times reports that if, uh, I guess, read the fine print, right? That 75% of American workers Work for companies that qualify for an exemption from the law, so that they could get around having to provide that paid leave. Have you had a chance to look into that? And is that a legitimate criticism?
0: I think the I think that may relate to the size of the businesses because this applies to businesses with over five hundred under five hundred employees, and that was because a huge number of businesses that are over five hundred employees already have. Um, paid family leave. And I think there was a sense of we don't want to subsidize employee large employers who are providing this as part of their normal compensation. But I do think we need to look at it and make sure that in our effort to do that, we didn't leave out people who um, work for companies who do not provide paid family leave. The goal of it has to be everyone in America who is asked to stay home, asked to socially distance, or has someone who gets ill in their family that they have to care for or gets ill themselves is allowed to stay home without the economic worry of whether they'll be able to pay their bills. So I think that's very much the speaker's focus and the House Democrats. And to the extent that there's any gap in that, um, I think you'll see us make sure we
1: close it in this fourth. And leader Mitch McConnell says we don't need any more. We've done enough. Right. I mean, yeah. what's Nancy Pelosi just, thinking about? She ought to stand yeah. down, he said. Yeah.
0: He, you know, it's important to remember Mitch McConnell wasn't a big fan of doing anything on any of these three prior packages. I mean, we had to, it was really the leadership of the Speaker and the House Democrats that forced this to happen. So it's not a surprise that Mitch McConnell, who's never seen a big corporation, he wasn't happy to help. But when it comes to working families, not so interested, that's not a surprising comment. Uh, it's also a little happy talk like, oh, this is going to be enough, which I think is further evidence that the president's allies are trying to downplay the significance of this. The numbers that came out yesterday, 6.6 million Americans filed for unemployment insurance last week, doubling the week before. Um, we have a lot more that's that we need to do. Uh this is just the beginning really of the economic recovery that's going to be necessary. And you know, the first part of it is to deal with the virus and deal with the health implications. So you can't rebuild the economy until people can go back to work and become consumers again. So staying very focused on you know, defeating this virus and making people well and making sure our hospitals and our healthcare workers have the support they need. And then at the same time, getting ready so we're positioned to really recover economically. But it's happy talk and crazy to think we're not going to have to do much more to get this economy back on track.
1: Is this time for, is this finally the time for the elusive infrastructure package?
0: Yes. You know, it's interesting. One other point to make about Mitch McConnell, he's kind of squawking about the cost of this last uh, relief package of two trillion, a little over two trillion dollars. It's useful to remember that the Republicans in the Senate led the effort to pass this Republican tax scam that (laughs) 83 percent of the benefits went to the top one percent. That coincidentally, they were just too happy to pay two trillion dollars for, which was unpaid for and didn't say a peep about it the same amount of money being used to help the economy and help working people in this country, and they're sort of reluctant. So it's kind of ironic when you think about it. Um, but uh, specifically to your question about infrastructure, I think there is uh, a, a very deep understanding in the Democratic caucus that one of the best investments we can make in terms of value on the, on the economy is investing in infrastructure. It not only contributes to the improvement in the quality of people's lives, in terms of their travel and their commutes and their driving on the roads it has enormous uh, environmental benefits uh it has enormous um, health and safety benefits when you have bridges that aren't you know mm-hmm. dangerous and about to fall down um so i think we really recognize that one of the best ways we can get the economy moving again is to invest in rebuilding the crumbling infrastructure of our country particularly when the borrowing rates are so low. This is probably the best time to do a massive infrastructure plan. So I think we're going to have to balance, you know, the short-term needs for, you know, help to small business and unemployment benefits and direct cash and those things, and at the same time, uh, weigh in a very serious way a bold, big infrastructure bill that will really hopefully supercharge the recovery after we get through this pandemic.
1: How important is the creation of a new? oversight committee uh, to keep on top of this program?
0: Well, I I think it's critical. Uh, This is a huge investment, uh, $2.2 trillion and more to come. Uh, And I think the Speaker is absolutely right that we need to have a committee that's engaged in responsible oversight while it's happening, not six months or a year from now, while these contracts are being given, while these purchases are being made, while the Uh, And so, you know, sadly, we've seen from this administration a level of corruption really unprecedented in American political history. So the idea that they would suddenly behave differently in the middle of a pandemic is wishful thinking, in my view. And so having a bipartisan, serious um, select committee engaged in oversight with full subpoena power so that as we're... Spending this money we we can have confidence that we're being good stewards of the public's money and that it's being done honestly and transparently and uh, free from corrupt
1: influences and I think it's critical one question that came up with the covid nineteen three was would everybody have to come back to Washington to vote for it as it turned out because of one member uh, enough had to come back to to be able to have a have a vote on the floor but it did raise the question about should Congress be able to vote remote, remotely, either by, I don't know, online or by phone or whatever. Uh, is that being seriously considered? And do you think it's critical?
0: I think it is being considered. I think there's been some reluctance by uh, some in the caucus to embrace that uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it would set a very dangerous precedent. I mean, the, the Congress met. uh through many difficult periods in the history of our country, including wars and other conflicts. And, you know, part of the legislative process is obviously the give and take of debate and the give and take of negotiations and the ability of the public to tune in, to hear witnesses. And so it would require some significant kind of infrastructure to make it happen. And I think there's a lot of reasons to be concerned that we would lose some of the deliberative engagement that is necessary for the production of good work in the Congress. Having said that, I think this pandemic has made us realize there may be an instance in which we do, it's just not safe uh, for people to come back. This is one example. And so my guess is there will be some proposal to begin to put together a plan uh, so that if we have to do this ever again, there will be an emergency mechanism to do it. And it will be very narrowly drawn so that it really can't be invoked except in Extreme emergencies, because there's an interim step now, you know, for if people get there to, you know, the sergeant at arms had started to develop a plan about how you would vote. You know, if your last name began with A through C, you vote at one o'clock and then, you know, Mm -hmm. D through F, you run at three o'clock so that you would reduce the presence of people on the floor. So I think there's things we can do, but I think the pandemic has made Congress understand that we have to have some contingency for this uh, kind of event.
1: Right. If you hold there just a second, Congressman, uh, and be so kind as we take a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod, and then we'll resume our conversation. Today's podcast with Congressman David Cicillini, brought to you by the Iron Workers Union, the Iron Workers of America under the leadership of President Eric Dean. You think about any of America's most iconic structures the Golden Gate Bridge, the St. Louis Arch, the new Freedom Tower, the Sears Tower. All work of iron workers. There would be no American skyline without the iron workers. So we salute them for their great work, their great contribution to this economy, and their support. Thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod.
0: Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
1: And we're back with Congressman David Cicilline from Rhode Island, who is chair of the Democratic Policy and Communications Committee, very much part of the Democratic leadership in the House of Representatives. So, Congressman, we found this week that in the last two weeks, 10 million Americans have filed for unemployment insurance. Is our economy capable of a, a rebound, and how long do you think it'll take? I think there's no question our economy is capable
0: of a rebound, but it is going to be a longer period of time, and I think a lot of administration officials are suggesting, and it is going to require an active role by the federal government to make it happen. Uh, and so I you know I think we have to be prepared to provide additional support to small business, additional support to states and local governments, additional supports to people who remain unemployed for an extended period of time. Uh, we need to be sure that the Fed is using all of the powers at its disposal to support state and local governments uh, and the bond market. So I think you know this this is a this is going to be an economic downturn you know, worse than the Great Recession. And it's going to um, require a significant federal role to, to have a successful recovery and to have that recovery happen in as short a period of time as possible.
1: And one group that I've been thinking about lately, probably the worst time for anybody to graduate from college. Yeah. In, in this economy, the way it is.
0: I mean we did include a 6 month deferment for student loans in the bill but you're absolutely right it's you know for people that are just graduating that that lived through the great recession finally started to see the economy coming back and are now graduating I mean they haven't lived through a good economic time for any extended period and it's it's going to be tough for students I think the other thing that this pandemic has revealed is the fragility of our economy broadly the fact that so many Americans literally couldn't get through one or two weeks without a paycheck, without really facing a catastrophe. And that so many businesses couldn't get through a month, uh, you know, and have enough reserves to get through. That shows you that that people are living on the edge, that, you know, every, that more and more Americans uh, can't you know, get through week to week or just barely can get through. And so while there's all this talk about economic growth and this recovery, it's still disproportionately being seen at the very top. And there are still too many people in this country that are really living in very fragile circumstances. And I think this pandemic just showed it all. And and I hope it will cause us not only to support an active federal response to, to help folks recover, but to think, what are the underlying policies that are contributing to this kind of fragility? Why is it that people have are in, un, incapable or unable to save for a few months so that they can get through a difficult period, like because wages are too low, because healthcare is too expensive? You know, look at the underlying causes of the fragility that exists
1: for for too many working Americans and small businesses. And, and on, the, on that point, Congressman, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you went there because I wanted to ask you about that. Look, we have a long way to go. We all agree. But have we already learned something from this pandemic, as you point out, about maybe the importance of a living wage, the importance of a, a real social safety net, or the importance of health care for all yeah. Americans? Yeah. Uh, and maybe that will change some attitudes going forward.
0: Yeah, I mean, you would hope so. Look, I mean, when you think about the people who were encouraged early in this pandemic to stay home, but worked in jobs where they didn't have paid family leave, or they had a child who was sick maybe with this virus, but couldn't stay home because they didn't have medical leave, family medical leave, or they uh, worked in a job and they didn't have health insurance, and so they couldn't get tested to see or, or see a doctor even. And at the very same time, the President of the United States is in court right now trying to have the Affordable Care Act declared unconstitutional and take away healthcare for millions and millions of Americans. He's refused to extend the enrollment period across the country. So this debate, you know, it should be clear to everyone, the central importance of having access to quality affordable affordable healthcare every day of your life, and particularly in a pandemic, but we still have a president and Republicans in Congress who are supporting litigation to take it away, who are supporting a decision not to expand to open enrollment. So yes, you're right. We should be learning lessons. Same thing with wages. I mean, this should be a lesson to to all of us that people should be earning a living wage so they have the ability not only to meet their current needs, but to plan for the future. People don't have that ability because they're using up every dollar they make to pay their bills. So I hope One silver lining of this will be some urgency around paid family leave and paid medical leave and a living wage and and federally supported childcare and a whole range of things that we're learning or that we know but are revealing themselves uh, to the whole country that it will persuade some of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle to support our efforts to fund these kinds of initiatives.
1: Uh, and if I might add, listening to the scientists about um, the possibility of pandemics and also listening listening to the scientists about the reality of climate change.
0: Yeah, I mean, it would be very useful if people uh, at least made a pledge to accept science. And when you think about, you know, it's one thing to... to um, Reject science in, in any context, but it has life and death consequences when you don't accept science in, in, in an effort to combat a deadly pandemic. And so, you know, the president telling people, like, oh, go back to work, you're going to get better if you go to work. He said that early in this crisis, you know, that's dangerous advice to be giving people. And uh, it's also a, a day to not only honor healthcare workers and doctors and nurses and people working work in hospitals, but also to honor scientists and researchers we are trying to find a cure for this disease. Uh,
1: So, Congressman, before we let you go, I just have to ask you about one thing that everybody seems to have forgotten about. There is still a Democratic primary going on. Um, Do you assume that uh, Joe Biden is a Democratic nominee?
0: You know, it's hard to see a path for Senator Sanders at this point, but, you know, Senator Sanders has a huge enthusiastic uh, following of supporters And so I think, you know, everyone's going to respect uh, his decision he makes about whether, you know, kind of how he goes forward. I do think the kind of numbers make it hard to figure out how that could happen. But I think we have learned a lesson and we want this Democratic primary process to be open and fully transparent. And right now we have two candidates. I would say that the kind of my money in terms of who I think is likely to be the nominee based on kind of what remains is Joe Biden.
1: And when you pick up the phone and talk to Joe Biden the next time, who is your recommendation for vice presidential uh, candidate with him? Well, um, you have a favorite?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think uh, I'd love to think about Val Demings, uh, my colleague from Florida, who I think is uh, extraordinary. And she was an impeachment manager. She was a police chief. She's great. Um, Kamala Harris is great. Stacey Abrams. You know, I think there's a lot of, Really terrific candidates out there would make great running mates for Vice President Biden.
1: Well, from what we've heard, Val Demings is on the list, so I think your voice has already been heard. (laughs) Good. Congressman Cicilline, you're very kind to spend so much time with us. Uh, Stay safe and take care of Rhode Island. And thanks for your work for all of us in America. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. And that's it for today's podcast with Congressman David Cicilline. Thanks to the good congressman. And thanks to all of you for joining us. And please do us a favor, again, if you haven't already done so. But it's so important. Can't tell you that too many times that you subscribe to the Bill Press Pod. Subscribe by just going to wherever you're listening to this podcast Pull up the Bill Press Pod and click on subscribe, and then tell your friends to do the same. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Keep your social distancing. Wash your hands and come back for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars.